Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Stephen Schwartzman is the founder of Blackstone Group, the largest alternative asset manager in the world, with $554 billion worth of assets under management. With a wide range of global business interests in private equity, debt financing, hedge fund management, and real estate acquisitions, Schwartzman is one of the most powerful people on Wall Street. He was named one of Time Magazine's most influential people in 2007 and has donated hundreds of millions of dollars to different causes over the years. Schwartzman sat down with David Rubenstein, co-founder of the Carlyle Group and host of the Bloomberg television show Peer-to-Peer Conversations to discuss starting the firm surviving the real estate crash of 2007, and being rejected from Harvard. Before we get into Blackstone, I'd like to talk about a couple other things. Uh, You grew up in a middle-class environment in Philadelphia, and now you're one of the wealthiest men in the world, you're one of the biggest philanthropists in the world, and you are an advisor to presidents. Uh, The last three presidents have asked your advice on various things, and you're very close to President Trump. So when you're growing up in Philadelphia, did you ever in your wildest dreams imagine this could possibly happen? No. Did you, are you, do you pinch yourself every day now you think about where you have achieved uh, your status in life? Yeah, uh, frankly, uh, every day is an adventure uh, and every day is a privilege. Now, you've come to know President Trump uh, quite well in recent years since he's been president. Did you know him before he was president or know him very well then? Yeah, I, I, I knew him before he was president. Uh, so when he told you, I'm running, thinking of running for president, did you tell him you have a good chance or do you tell him that's a tough thing to do? I, I, I thought that was a veritable impossibility. Okay. So when he got elected, did he say, Steve, um, you were wrong, and why don't you come in and serve in the administration? I, I can't tell you exactly what he said, but it was very funny. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be part of uh, the government. I have a, a, a wonderful life as it is, and I didn't want to disrupt that. So you've been an advisor off and on for the, from the beginning of administration to president, and he's asked you to do a number of assignments, but I've never seen him tweet anything unfavorable about you. So you've managed to stay on his good side. Uh, what's the secret to staying on his good side? Well, you tell people the truth. Uh, you know, I, I don't work in the administration. I'm an independent person, and I, I give my views. Uh, I find that he likes to listen, uh, and, and that's, I think, a good thing. But let's suppose he's reelected. And he said, Steve, I'd like you to be Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury. Would you ever consider that? Well, when I was younger, I would do that, David. I'm at a point in my life now where that, that's not where I want to spend my time. Okay. So you have spent some time recently writing a new book. Um, this is Steve Schwartzman, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Well, I read the book, and it's quite fascinating. Uh, I know you quite well, um, but I didn't know a lot about your background, and I, which I found quite interesting. And why don't we start with your background and take you through uh, the creation of Blackstone. So you grew up in the Philadelphia suburbs, is that right? That's right. And you were from a middle-class family. Your father had a um, curtain store? Yeah, a curtain store sort of was, would have been a bed, bath, and beyond uh, type of store. And it was started by his father. That's right. And so he came into the business, and did they say, Steve, you're the oldest of the three sons that he had. 
now it's time for you to come into the business. Well, that was sort of expected, and I, I found that standing up and waiting on people buying uh, linen handkerchiefs was perhaps not my highest and best use. But you told your father, according to the book, that maybe he should expand it, do more than one store, and maybe become Bed Bath & Beyond. What did he say to that advice? He, he said, Steve, that's really interesting. I don't feel like doing that. And I said, Dad, why, why don't you want to do it? We have lots of people in this store. I, I haven't seen another store like this. I, I think we could be national. And he just said, not for him? He, he, he said, I, I'm just not interested. So I, I said, well, why don't we open stores all over Pennsylvania? Because uh, I was from Philadelphia. And he said, I, I don't want to do that. So then I, I had a third option, which is, why don't we open stores all over Philadelphia? And he said, I don't want to do that either. I said, Dad, why, why don't you want to do this? And he said, I'm happy the way I am. I have a house. I have two cars. I have enough money to send you and your brothers to college. And that's really all I want. And I, I shook my head and I went, I, I don't understand that. I, I just saw the opportunity to open stores all over the country and he just didn't want to do it. And what was surprising to me is he was very, very intelligent. Well, you say in your book that he was far more intelligent than you. That might be an exaggeration, but he obviously was a very smart person. That was not an exaggeration because I would talk to him uh, when I was starting my career on things. And no matter what I was working on, he, he could always find the weakness uh, in, in the argument or in the deal. And what about your mother? What did she do? She, she was just aggressive. Uh, and she was a housewife. Uh, it was the 1950s uh, and, and, and 60s. And I have twin brothers and three of us were a handful. And, and that, that was the paradigm at that time. So as I said, I've known you for quite a while. But honestly, until I read this book, I did not realize you were a track star. Were there a lot of you know, white Jewish boys on the track team, or were you a minority in that regard? I think I was a minority of one. You say in the book, which obviously is true, that you did something that's quite audacious. You applied to Harvard, Yale, and I think Princeton, and Harvard did not accept you. So you then got out some coins and called the director of admissions at Harvard and said you made a mistake. What was that like? That was frightening, uh, actually. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have cell phones then. Uh, so so I, I got some quarters, uh, and I, I found the phone number for the admissions office and some document, uh, and, and the, the, the pay phone was, was outside the gym. Uh, and I stood there and put those quarters on in, and you could hear the ringing when they dropped down. And I asked for the dean of admissions, and I was put right through. And so he picks up the phone, and I, I said, hi, I'm Steve Schwarzman from... Abington High School in Abington, Pennsylvania, and I'm on the waiting list, and uh, I'd really like to go uh, to Harvard, so why don't you take me off the waiting list? And so he said, how in the world did you get through to me? He said, you're not allowed to talk to me. I don't talk to applicants. Um, and I, I said, but we're talking. And he said, yes. He said, he said you sound like a very nice young man, but unfortunately, we're not going to be taking anyone from the waiting list this year. You know, we, our yield was, was higher than we thought. 
and uh, where, where else uh, were you accepted? I said, well, I've accepted at Yale. And he said, well, you, you'll have a very good time at Yale and you'll enjoy it. I said, I'm sure I would. Uh, I said, but that wasn't my objective for the phone call. He said, well, I understand that. I'm, I'm just so sorry. Did you ever see him again or hear from him again in life? Ironically, it's, a, it's really a great story. Uh, the, the, the CEO of McKinsey was in my office like 25 years later, and uh, he was on the Harvard uh, Corporation. Uh, and um, uh, I told him this story. So he asked what year, and that dean of admissions um, was a close friend of his. He said, do you mind if I told him that I ran into you? I said, no, that's fine. Uh, and, and so I got a letter two weeks later from that former dean of admissions. Right. Uh, and he said, I remember getting that phone call in 1964. And he said, every time I see you in a newspaper, I realized I blew it. Uh, and uh, I, I wish I made all the right decisions. Uh, but as I told you at the time, there, there were no, no beds at the inn. You um, then went to Harvard Business School. Yes. And did you enjoy Harvard Business School? No. Did you want to drop out? Yes. And what kept you from dropping out? I, I wrote a letter. Uh, in, in, there was no internet. Uh, I wrote a letter to Dick Jenneret, who was president uh, of a firm called Donaldson Lufkin Jenneret, uh, which is where I worked a bit right after I graduated, before I went into the Army. And I said, Dick, it's cold up here. Uh, the classes are highly repetitive, uh, and uh, I'd like to come back to work. And if you don't want me at DLJ, I'll do something else. Uh, what do you think? So, so he wrote me a six-page letter. And he said, that's just the way I felt in December of my first year. And I was going to transfer uh, to, to the economic school and get a PhD. And I didn't drop out, and you shouldn't either. You should complete what you're doing. And I was so dumbfounded that he was so kind and thoughtful and had similar feelings and, and basically said, don't you do that. It's the wrong decision that I just listened to him and stayed. So you stayed, and I, you must have done pretty well because you had lots of offers afterwards. Yes. So you interviewed with a number of firms, and the one you decided to go with was Lehman Brothers. Yes. Why did you pick Lehman Brothers? I thought it, would be the, it was the most interesting cast of characters. Uh, you know, that was before MBAs went to Wall Street. Uh, and um, so, so they just hired at random, and, and this was the first class of MBAs that Lehman was going to hire. And the people were fascinating. You had ex-CIA agents, you had people who had worked on oil rigs, you, you had all kinds of unusual people working uh, at the firm. So I, I thought, uh, for whatever the reason, it was the right uh, personality fit for me. And you became a partner at an early age, I think 31, yeah, something like that? Yeah, I think like it was that. 31. So 31 years old, you're a partner at Lehman Brothers, and life is going well, but then there's a problem at Lehman Brothers, and Lehman Brothers ultimately was sold, is that right? Yes, that's right. I sold it uh, and to American Express, and the problem w was that in the trading side of the firm, there was a position taken uh, that really went wrong. So you then decided to join somebody who had been previously been the president of Lehman Brothers, but he was eased out. Right. Um, that's Pete Peterson, previously also Secretary of Commerce in the Nixon administration, and you and he decided to start a new firm in 1985? Yes, that's right. right. 
and that firm's name was um, Blackstone. So 1985, Blackstone starts, two people, you and Pete Peterson. Uh, where did you have get the money for, for the firm? Well, it didn't require much. It was an advisory business. So you talk and people give you money. But you each put in $200,000. The strategic plan for the business, which we announced in a letter to everyone we knew, was first, you know, the M&A advisory business because it required no capital. Right. Uh, the second was going into the private equity business. And you had never been, you or Pete, private equity investor before. And Pete said, since we haven't been, we'll go out and raise a small fund, a $50 million fund. You said, if I recall the book, let's go raise a billion dollars. Billion dollars. So that's fairly audacious. Uh, where were you going to get a billion dollars? So, so we went to our top 18 prospects. Uh, everyone said no, except uh, Metropolitan Life and New York Life. One said, I'll give you 50 million. The other one said, I'll give you 25. But I don't want to be, you know, sort of a big part of the thing. So you have to raise at least... $500 million or else our commitments are worthless. And we'd already gone to everybody we knew who was the best targets. And I sort of looked at that and I went, OMG, we, we are gonna fail. And we just met one more company, it's called Prudential Life Insurance Company, which was the number one financier in, in those days. And uh, we were over at Newark on a Friday having uh, lunch with the chief investment officer and he was having a tuna on white bread cut across and i'm busy pitching this private equity fund and you can share part of our advisory profits as a merchant bank and he keeps chewing and his adam's apples going up and down and i keep doing my thing finishes the first half of the sandwich gets through the other half halfway, and he looks over at me and he says, I think that's a good idea. Put me down for 100. And I just, I can still remember that moment. Did, did he actually say he's going to give us $100 million, the number one investor in the world, so if he gives us money, other people will follow him? And I realized somehow in Newark on some dreary Friday, and he gave us the money. I just didn't want him to choke on the rest of that sandwich. Make sure he lived to give you the money. Exactly. You did pretty well, and your advisor business is booming. You decided to get into um, other businesses? The first one was ended up as BlackRock uh, with Larry Fink, and Larry brought people over, and they were called uh, uh, Blackstone Financial. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Blackstone Financial, and so you actually owned the firm or owned part of the firm? 50-50. 50-50, okay. So you owned 50-50, and now Blackstone Financial is now BlackRock, which is managing like $6 trillion, I guess, or something like that. Six and a half. Six and a half trillion, okay. So uh, how did they escape from Blackstone? Well, they didn't really escape. Uh, you know, we set up a, 
economic arrangement which ended up being inappropriate uh, for a business that was growing as rapidly uh, needed to add as many people. Uh, and uh, I made a mistake. You know, I took the original agreement. I didn't want to change it, which was advantageous, uh, you know, for my side. Uh, and uh, the BlackRock people, Blackstone, they were Blackstone financial people were frustrated uh, with that. And, and that was the, the judgment of an amateur me. Uh, in 2007, you decide maybe you should take the firm public. It's a private company. Why did you just take the firm public? Well, I, I took it public for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I had a sixth sense that something terrible was going to happen in the environment. Uh, money was so available. Money was cheap. Everybody was doing things. Prices were crazy. And uh, I just had a sense this was going to come to a bad ending. And we should have a lot of capital to, to make sure we were bomb-proof. So, so that was one reason. Uh, a second reason uh, is I thought it would be a great branding event for the firm on a global basis. Everybody would know who we were, and that would make it easier to raise money, uh, as, as well as to uh, have people sell us companies and other assets. So ultimately what happened was the China, Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund was the process of being created. They heard about your going public, and they, through an intermediary, actually somebody working for you, said, can we buy a big stake in the IPO? And you ultimately decided to let them do that, right? The IPO was going to be $4 billion. They, they offered to invest $3 billion, which, and we didn't even ask them. Uh, and I hadn't been to China since 1990. So this was, it was shocking because um, th that China had not invested in another public company since, since it was founded in like 1949. So, so this was a complete paradigm shift for, for China, and we were chosen by them. It was pretty heady stuff. It worked out, and um, ultimately you did the IPO, and Chinese invested. And then after you did the IPO, uh, let me mention two deals that you did. One was the biggest real estate deal in history, EOP, a real estate company built by Sam Zell. And you did a $40 billion buyout, in effect, is that right? Yeah, it's 39, actually. Okay. For, all right, $39 billion. It was a bidding war. You won the bidding war, but the real estate market crumbled right after the deal was done. So how did you survive with that deal? Well, we worried, because uh, the same reason we were going public, uh, I, I sensed we were in market top uh, for real estate. So, so just buying... $39 billion of uh, real estate, uh, I, I thought was dangerous uh, because you had to pay a, a pretty good price to get it because it was competitive. So as, as soon as we decided we were going to actually raise our price enough to be, be the, the winner, um, there were two or three of us sitting around saying, this deal is potentially dangerous. We, we've got to reduce the leverage, and we've got to take advantage of the crazy prices that people are paying. So we decided to sell half of what we bought the same day we bought it. So when I told people that, they just sort of looked at me and, and said, the same day? I said, I don't want to take any risk that the world's going to change and we're going to be stuck with all of this. So we basically had every conference room at the firm active, one, buying 
but then we broke it up into all these pieces. But if you hadn't done that, you would have lost all your money. I think that's probably the real estate the case. market cratered virtually the next day. Right, so because mo most of the people who bought from us basically got into enormous financial trouble or, or, or went insolvent. And, and so after we did that and closed, everybody went home, they'd been sleepless. Three days later, they came back and we said, let's sell half of what we got left now and be even more conservative. So everybody went back to work and we ended up with one quarter of what we bought very conservatively priced so we could survive any kind of nuclear winter. We ended up making three times our money buying right. this, this giant thing at the top. And, and there's never been more than $10 billion uh, bought or sold by a group. We did 70 billion. So you also bought another company before the recession really hit. That was called Hilton. And that was a leveraged buyout. And some people might say at the top of the market. And that deal went down in terms of the debt and maybe the equity. But then you ultimately did things that made it the most profitable buyout in the history of buyouts. What did, what did you do? Well, that was pretty easy, uh, actually. Looked hard. But, um, you know, Hilton had not been integrated. They were running four different headquarters. Uh, and there, there was a huge um, modernization and, 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 and cost takeout. Ultimately, you sold it at about a $14 billion profit? Yes. Well, if we had held it, it would have been held it longer. It would have been over 20. So, so it was a good day because it's nice. 14 okay. billion. In recent years, you've become one of the nation's biggest philanthropists. You gave $350 million to MIT for a computing center and relating to artificial intelligence. You never went to MIT. You had no connection there. How did that come about? Well, that was, that was really fascinating. I, I'm not a technologist. I had met uh, the president of MIT, Raphael Rafe, and we started talking. Uh, and, you know, I, I, we were concerned that the U.S. was just not investing enough in these technologies. And I said, do you have any interesting uh, ideas? Proposal. So he came back with a let's double uh, the computer science faculty. Let's take our, uh, establish a new department, in effect, a new school, uh, we called it a college, uh, which is now going to be the MIT Schwarzman College of Computing, and let's connect AI to all the other departments at uh, MIT. So MIT will become the first AI-enabled university in the world. And I said, now that's a vision I could buy in on. Final question I'd like to ask you, which is, uh, deals with this. Um, if somebody is watching or reading your book and they want to be a leader, a leader in business or philanthropy or, or in government, what do you think is the key quality to be a leader? And what have you seen as their key quality to enable you to be a leader? I, I, I think to, to be a leader, you have to be a really good listener. Um, you have to understand what's going on around you. Uh, you, you have to be measured, um, and, and you have to realize that everything you do is amplified in the minds of the people who are listening to you. So, so care, nuance, uh, kindness, uh, but defining a culture is what a leader does. Steve, thanks very much for this time. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. That's Blackstone Group Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Stephen Schwartzman. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.